Genesis chapter 5, one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. It's a genealogy. How many of you like to study genealogies? Tim. All right, this is for you, Tim. And Ginger, I didn't see Ginger over there. And so it begins, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. Very exciting. And so you read about all these names that you cannot pronounce. What I want you to do is real quickly flip over to Luke chapter 3. As you're doing that, this entire chapter is a genealogy from Adam, here in Genesis chapter 5, from Adam to Noah. And it gets all the way down to his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. One of the questions that's often asked is, why are so many people left out? Why are so many people left out of the genealogy? I mean, why are you just talking about these guys? It says, well, they're brothers and sisters. What about their brothers and sisters? I know you guys are all want to know the answer to this. And so the answer is, it's, they're not important uh, <coughs> to the main story, right? If you are writing a story, and uh, you're not going to spend five hours talking about characters that are not important to the plot or to the main you know, the main thrust of the book. Amen? And so as you get to Luke chapter 3, you flip over there, you start reading, and it gets kind of weird, doesn't it? Now look at verse, you know, you look at the several verses right there in the middle. It's, it's a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what it's doing is it's tracing the lineage from, from uh, Jesus all the way back to Adam. It's a real great read. And when you get to, let's say, verse 36 and 37, it reads backwards from what we're reading today. It says, uh, well, the sons of Noah, the sons of Lamech, verse 37, it says, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so I just saved you a bunch of reading. Uh, <laughs> let's pray and go home. I'm just kidding. Uh, but what chapter 5 is doing and what the rest of Genesis is doing all throughout Genesis, it's the book of genealogies, it's the beginnings. And it is funneling down, as I've mentioned before, from Adam it's going to a person, Abraham, and eventually that person's going to create a nation. And through that, that is going to Jesus Christ. That is the point, is that all these people are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. That is why it does not talk about the brothers and sisters if they're not important. I find it really neat that you see in uh, that Jesus is a descendant of Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. So God can fully relate to us, yet he is 100% God. His father was not Joseph. And that is the link. The scripture declares in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God, the man Jesus Christ. He alone can fit that description. So the one who understands what we've been through, and yet it's fully God, sinless. So while we're reading these names in, in the genealogy today that are leading up to Abraham and the birth of a nation, the Holy Spirit is weaving that scarlet thread, is what they call it, the lineage of the Messiah, the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 that would eventually crush the serpent's head is being weaved all throughout the Old Testament. And if you miss it, you're missing the whole purpose of, of the Old Testament because Jesus says, the whole thing is about me. 
The whole Testament, every single page is pointing to me. And God is weaving Jesus Christ, his story, his lineage, the whole purpose, the redemption of mankind throughout the whole Testament. And that's why from time to time, as you are reading through Genesis, you'll be reading a story, and all of a sudden it deviates from the, from the story. And you're going, what? what does this have to do with anything? Like, we'll get to Genesis in a little bit, where all of a sudden there's a story of Judah who, like, jumps off to the side and, and has uh, relations with a prostitute. And they have a kid. Why does it talk about that? And then it goes back to the main story. Because that prostitute who had that kid, that's Jesus' lineage. The person who's writing at the time does not know this. And you can tell Rahab, hiding the spies. What's so important about Rahab? Why do they name her by name? Related to Jesus. Continuing on on. The book of Ruth. Why is the book of Ruth in there? Lineage of Jesus. You keep on going on. And David and Bathsheba, what's so important about that? Lineage of Jesus. Keeps on going and going and going and going. And so you have all these wonderful critters in Jesus' lineage. Just like us. Wonderful family, right? All these characters, all these blood-related people to Jesus. And so Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 is part of that story. It's a little section. It says, This is the written account of Adam's family life. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created, distinct, male and female. God created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God. In verse 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. Now, we see a couple things here. We see uh, that Adam had other sons and daughters. And obviously, I talked to you about it's not important. Focusing on Seth, the line of Seth is Christ. But there's a few things I want to point out here. The first is that people were marrying relatives. Very fun, isn't it? Uh, you can't get around that. Adam and Eve had kids, brothers and sisters, and how many people are in your family, let's say, over the past 50 years? A lot of people in your family, right? Well, let's expand that several hundred years, how many people in your family? So people were intermarrying within families up to the point of Moses and Leviticus 18 or somewhere around there, 16 or 18, I can't remember, where he says, let's not do that anymore. But uh, regardless, we see that throughout the Bible. We see Abraham... He married his half-sister, and then Isaac married his cousin. And the Bible doesn't cease to uh, not to skirt around objects. It lays it just as it is. And in God's early plan, this was okay. And perhaps it was because the genetic code was clean enough to where there weren't enough defects to where it didn't make a difference. And as time got on and man began to deteriorate more and more, God said, hey, there's enough people you don't need to be marrying your sister anymore. And so... Uh, that is obviously there, and people talk about that. Why that is is because it was different. It was perceived differently than it is now. Um, also, people were living very long lives. I mean, Adam lived 930 years. People go, well, that's impossible. Um, and, and I can understand why people say that's impossible, but I am one of those people who happens to believe we are deteriorating, deteriorating, de- devolving, not evolving. 
I think things are getting worse, not better. I think the more, uh, I mean, just look at look at humanity. It's falling apart. I, I think it's interesting that the law, second law of thermodynamics, for example, which states that everything is going from a, a, uh, a place of order to disorder, except for they don't apply it to biology. Why not? <laughs> Every area of science, except for, you know, when you're looking at bi biology, I don't think we're we're living longer these these days. I mean, we might because of medicine, but in general, mankind started to go down after the flood. Something on the earth changed, and people were not allowed to live as long. But 930 years. Can you imagine being born in the year 1083 and just dying today? I mean, the churches have just split. you got the Eastern and Western Empire. I mean, that's a long time ago. That's a lot of history, a lot of wars, lots going on, a lot of knowledge accumulated. Um, the, you know, the New World wouldn't have been discovered for another 400 years after you were born. I mean, just a lot of, that's, that's a huge amount of time. And one-sixth of human history that we see written in Scripture, that's, that's a long time. And so notice the last thing is that Adam, in Adam's genealogy is that he died. Notice the repetition. God, God said in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And God made good on his word. Adam died spiritually that day, but physical death finally took its toll, and Adam died. When Adam was 930 years, years old, death had completed its work in Adam's body. And the penalty for sin is death. And that is something we are all going to face. I remember Billy Graham, you know, at one of his crusades, he, you know, he pointed to this giant crowd and said, in 100 years, where are you all going to be? And most likely every single one of those people will probably be gone. And it's coming to us all. The question is, what happens then? What do we do with that? And this chapter seeks to hint at the answer to this. And so... Verse 6 says, when, Le when Seth lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a, a total of 912 years, and then he died. Pretty cool. Verse 9, and then Enosh had lived 90 years, and he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, enjoying this, uh, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had another, had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Uh, Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully, God, faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Do you notice a break? A change? The Holy Spirit's trying to tell us something when that happens in Scripture. He's boring you to death and he wakes you up. Right? He's trying to 
bring us to the point, what is the difference between all these people and Enoch? You see the repetition there? Here's life. You live, you have kids, and then what happens? You die. You live, you have kids, and you die. How many of you have had kids? Okay. <laughs> Just want to lay that out for you. <laughs> There's no, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now there's that break in that repetition. And in Genesis class, we talk about these repetitions. But up to this point, we see that men live, they have kids, and they die. And now we come to Enoch, and it says that he lived, he had kids. And then after that, he walked faithfully with God for 300 years, and then he was no more because God took him. So Enoch's life is distinct from the others so far. It's the same in that he lived and he had kids. But it's different, and then he walked with God, and he did not die. I love that. I think the Holy Spirit's trying to sell, tell us something. If we walk with God, we're not going to die. Now, obviously, we all will taste physical death. But what's he getting at here? What does he mean, walk with God? We won't die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes upon him shall not perish not die, but have everlasting life. That word believe is the same idea of here of walking with God. It isn't a thought. It isn't believing upon Christ so that, you know, so it's just a thought process. It's evident in your life. You act upon, you believe upon. It affects everything you are. You're walking with God. There's a relationship. There's, there's action involved. Your faith is, is, is operating. The belief is affecting you. When we walk with God, we have a relationship with God based upon faith in Jesus Christ. We're promised eternal life. That's God's promise. Enoch walked with God. And the question is, are we walking with God? What does that look like? Enoch is an intriguing character in the Bible and that he was one of only two people recorded that did not experience physical death as far as we know that we see. Uh, Elijah was carried away in a chariot of fire. Remember that? You can play the soundtrack in your head. But Enoch was taken. He was raptured, if you will, so to speak, by God. Taken away. Translated is the word. Changed. It's because these two, it's because of these two characters, specifically Enoch and Elijah, uh, that they didn't experience physical death, that many believe that they're the two witnesses in Revelation 11 who will uh, prophesy for 1,260 days, come down and be able to call down fire and turn water to blood, and then they die, and they're laying dead in the, in the streets for three and a half days, and then a voice shouts to them, and they were raised in front of the whole world, and people are amazed, and they go up back up to heaven. And because the scriptures say that it's appointed it's a man uh, to die once and then to judgment, that we all need to taste death. But because these two didn't die, they believe that, hey, possibly these are the two witnesses. Um, that's Hebrews 9.27 says that. Um, and so I go back and forth. Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? Who knows what the two witnesses are? Either way, we do know that Enoch, that he walked with God. And we actually have a little excerpt from one of his messages which is really strange because Enoch is not recorded in the Old Testament. However, uh, Jude, by the Holy Spirit, is quoting Enoch from the book of Enoch, which is 
you know, I mean, we have to deal with that. Either way, Enoch, it says that, it says that Enoch said in Jude chapter 1, verse 14, Enoch the seventh from Adam. Very interesting. How many from Adam? What's up with that number and then not being there? Being translated. Very interesting how God does all that weird stuff with the numbers. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with, uh, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them uh, of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness for all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So that's a little slice of what, when Enoch spoke, when he's preaching, what he sounded like. A lot of fun, isn't it? God's going to come back and he's going to judge the ungodly for the ungodly acts and the ungodly things they say and the ungodly. And that was his, that was his life. Little, little picture, a little snippet of the words he's saying. So Jude is quoting him from the book of Enoch and it gives us a glimpse into this man's heart. He prophesies concerning the return of the Lord before the flood. What is that? And he preaches God's judgment against ungodliness, a world, a, a word that he's repeating three times, ungodliness, ungodliness, ungodliness. So it must be important what he's saying. It also says of Enoch in Hebrews 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. That word translation is the same as transformed or changed. It was changed by God. He, what changed him? By his faith in the Lord, his walk with the Lord. He was changed. He didn't taste death because of that faith in him. So Enoch walked with God. It was faith in action. It, demonstrated in, it was demonstrated in his words and his actions. This is a, a guy you'd, you know, I, I tell you, it's not necessarily how to win friends and influence people, you know? I mean, you start reading some of these guys, and they're serious about the holiness of the Lord. They're serious about the fire that's going to come on the earth, that, that they're pleading with, with mankind, repent from unholiness and return to God, because God loves you, and He wants to take you out of the judgment that's coming. I and mean, this is their heart. And yet, when we start preaching from the pulpit, oh man, stop being so negative. You're ruining my vibe. But I have to ask, in, in this ungodly, unholy world that we live with and we're influenced by personally as Christians, sometimes we forget whose kid we are. I mean, do I, I do that? Anyone? And we need to be reminded, hey, you know, there's a line. There's a reason what Jesus redeemed me from and redeemed me to. And I'm to be in the world, absolutely. Paul said you can't get out of it. I'm not asking you not to be in the world, Paul says. This is be in it, not of it. And, and here Enoch is crying out, holiness unto the Lord, be separated unto him. You know? And I don't know if you caught this, what I, what I love about this is it says, but Enoch says in verse 22 of Genesis 3, it says, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. So what was happened before then? Perhaps 
He was hanging out with, he was in the world and was of the world. I don't know, but it's, the Holy Spirit's interesting how he puts these words in here. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. It would seem that something about Methuselah, that happening in his life, might have uh, awakened Enoch up to walking faithfully with God. Sometimes us having kids can do that. You know, I mean, how precious they are in our sight. And, whoa, what kind of life I'm living. It's got to change. A lot of people go back to church after they have kids and, and seek to try to reconnect with the Lord. But it says that he walked with God faithfully 300 years after he had Methuselah. The first 65 years were the same as everyone else. What happened? I have a guess to what happens, and this is conjecture for me, so from now on, just take it with a grain of salt. I think there's a, a, a lot to do with Methuselah in, in uh, here. In, uh, here's Methuselah's account in verse 25. If you read it, it says, Methuselah lived 187 years. He became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. And together, Methuselah lives a total of 969 years and then he died. So, I have a question up here. It says, Methuselah is the oldest living person recording in Scripture. Why? Genesis 5 can't answer. Very interesting. I think there's a significance in Methuselah's name. If we see some math up here, which you, you know I'm wonderful at. Methuselah had... Lamech at 187. Lamech had Noah at 182. So you add, you know, Methuselah is alive during all these. So if you add these numbers, we see that the flood came when Noah was 600. Noah was the son of Lamech. The flood came when Noah was 600 years old. That means at Noah's 600th birthday, the day that the flood came, Methuselah died. I know, it's a math thing, so you guys can have fun with that. But, did Methuselah, Methuselah die in the flood? Maybe. But there's significance in the name of Methuselah. It comes from two words. It means meth, the root meaning death, and from shalak, which means to bring forth, and it means his death shall bring. His death shall bring what? Well, Genesis chapter 7, verse 6 says Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. The reason Methuselah lived the longest is because I believe that the day he died, God would bring judgment on the earth. His name means his death shall come. I think Enoch probably heard from the Lord, and this is me, again, talking, speculating on Scripture, so please take that. But his name means his death shall bring. And it's very interesting that perhaps the Lord spoke to Enoch and said, hey, name your kid this, because when he dies, this is going to happen. And his life changed. And he began to be a preacher of righteousness. And started. And now you look at and you read his preaching about the ungodliness and all this stuff, and you see why his heart is beating like this. Because he knows it's going to happen. The reason why God delayed his wrath is because God desires that mankind would repent. 
That is why Methuselah is the oldest living person in the Bible. That shows you something about God's character. It shows you something about why, why is he, what's so special about this guy? Because when he dies, judgment's going to come. I want to delay that as long as possible. Why? 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. He delays his, his judgment. He delays his wrath on you because he loves. Not because he's unjust. Not because he won't right wrongs. Not because things won't be made straight. But he desires that everyone would repent and come to him. God desires that mankind would repent and avoid the wrath of God through faith in Jesus. In the days of Noah, God desired to delay his wrath as long as possible. As long as possible. And he had people who walked with God like Enoch and Noah. Seth even, the first prophet, who called out, repent. This is God's heart. And Second Peter here explains, uh, verses 3 through 9, explains more. It explains, well, it's because of the long-suffering that God desires mankind whom he loves would turn back to him and cease from their wickedness. I want you to stop. I want you to turn back. World. Right? World. Speaking to the world. And this is Peter talking to, this, to a church where some people are going, hey, you know, God, God isn't coming. There's people who are pressing upon the church going, God isn't answering his promises. He's not coming back. And Peter's trying to explain to this church who's going through a lot of trials, a lot of testing, a lot of pain, a lot of their faith is being stretched and they're, they're going, ah, they're, they're losing it. He's talking to him, he goes, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is the coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything has gone on since the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed over the past 2,000 years. Jesus isn't coming back. Ever since the creation, nothing has changed. But verse 5 in 2 Peter 3, it says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. It was flooded and destroyed. By that same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire. Not, not water next time, it's fire this time being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But verse 8, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not sweating it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, as we perceive slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. I love that. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See the context there? God's delaying. The 969 years, he's delaying. And just as God delayed his wrath, as demonstrated in Methuselah, he has delayed his judgment upon mankind here. God's heart is for the lost. And this is what he's screaming out throughout all of Scripture. This is what he's constantly yelling out through all Scripture. 
He named his own son Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. If you could name your son anything, what would it be? It reflects something about you. And he reflects his very character through his son. My son saves. I want to save. And that's what he's crying out to the world around us. And I want to, I know this seems like a really boring uh, genealogy, but even the names, they mean something. Read the names and what they mean. Here you are stuck in a genealogy. You put all the names together. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring despairing rest. The gospel in Genesis chapter 5 in a genealogy, what in the world is that? From the beginning, God's been crying out, this is my heart towards the world. And the question is, how then should we walk? If this is God's heartbeat, if this is what he's crying out, if this is what his son was named, if this is what all the prophets were, were, were crying out, if this is what Jesus lived for, this is what the apostles died for, how then shall we live? What makes you a Christian? Faith in Christ. Yes, right? But the word Christian means we reflect Jesus, right? What is life? It is to live for him. And Paul and Peter sitting here goes, hey, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Just as like those people on the earth, they didn't know it was going to come in the flood. It's coming. It's going to be like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And he answers. I love it when they answer themselves. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is not our home. Temporary. And so if you're living for this world, great is your sorrow. If you're invested in this world with everything you have. If you're living for the next thrill. You're not of his kingdom. You're not living in his kingdom. You're not living for the purpose God created you for. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, that you would understand this. Blameless. And every effort to be found, I'm sorry, blameless and at peace with him. That's the idea of, a, of a, an offering. It was to be spotless, without blemish, and given to God. How do we, be, how do we remain spotless? 
How did we become spotless? How do we remain spotless? Absolutely. Jesus. His word talks about that. Washing our hearts with his word, our minds with his words. The words of God, the words of life that change the way we live and the way we think about life. How we think about life is not how God thinks about life always. You know that? And we need to be conformed into the image of Christ. Into the mind of Christ by His Holy Spirit. And this is a a voluntary thing we do. Lord God, just possess me. As I open your word, help me not to have a hard heart and say, yeah, I'm just doing this. But speak to me. And as I read something that contradicts the way I live, Lord, let me change to it and not try to make it change to me. Let me not try to read through this thing to find verses that support the way I live, but read it for what it says and change my my life to the way that you want me to live. Let your word, the sword of the Spirit, cut between the joints and the marrow of my heart. And I'm, I'm... Saddened because in my own life and in the life of the church, the one thing the enemy has rooted out is the place in, in the, the place of the Word of God. And I've replaced it with idols, and I've replaced it with things that bring me no life. And I suffer. And then I try to go fix it on my own, going to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so to speak. Instead of going to Him for life and to figure out for the answers, for healing. Church, He loves you. He's called you from sinfulness to experience real life. And the enemy will dangle false life in front of you. And you will keep eating it and keep going for it. And in the end, it creates death. And that's the deceitful thing about the enemy. As he tries to make it look good, shiny, and pretty. But in the end, it never satisfies. God loves you. He wants us to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? And I just put this down here for me. You are still here for a purpose. And notice I put really bold there, his purpose. He's not done with you if you still have a heartbeat. What does that mean? God still has something about him he wants to show you. God still has things he wants to do in and through you. I know some of you are feeling like, well, I I don't have much worth because I can't do much. Yes, God wants to meet you right where you are. In your little place where you might be confined, God wants to take care of you, touch your heart, and to help you. He is not done with you. He's not done with others. By the very fact that you are still here and they are still here, He's not done with them either. And what does that mean? He's not done with your godly influence upon their lives. Are we living for the cross. If we're not living 
If I told you to give up all you had and to sell it, give it to the poor, go be a missionary on the field for the rest of your days and die young of a disease, how would you like that? How's that for a life goal? Yet God can grip a person and can possess them so much to where he is their prize, to where they will do that. And I'm not asking you to do that. God isn't necessarily asking you to do that this morning. But he's asking you to live for him. Live for him. Approach him. Go after him. Make him the apple of your eye, the prize of your heart. Make him your all in all. God, these things I've set up in my life, as trivial as they may be, just you be my focus and my hunger. And I know he's pulling on our hearts, church. And there are things that we will not give up. And we need to let, let them go. There's things that we must surrender to Christ. Not a legalism, but because the Holy Spirit's working on your heart this morning. Not because Matt says you have to jump through these hoops, because the Holy Spirit is tugging on you and say, Daughter, step out from this. This is death. I have life for you. Son, put that away. I have life for you. Some of you have been walking faithfully with the Lord, and He's giving you next steps. He's going to go, Son, daughter, I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. If you don't know where it is, just follow me. He'll lead you, and none of this will contradict His Word. As we're in His Word, as we're in prayer, as we're fellowshipping in the body, the Holy Spirit works these things throughout our lives. And guess what? People are going to start coming to Jesus Christ. Because God's heartbeat is for the lost. He saved you, didn't He? <laughs> saved me out of the pit. Not so that I could stay and be content, but so that I can see the world through his eyes. And that is how we are to live. Like we talked about here. So I want to finish with communion. I just want to finish with communion. And so if, uh, what we can do is that, is that people are going to come back in, but I want to stay focused on what the heart well, and what the Holy Spirit is saying to your heart. So as the kids are coming in, focus on what God's been saying to you, okay? Close your eyes for a few minutes. Just spend time with God for a minute, and then we'll have the communion service, okay? Just spend time with Him. Close your eyes.